All right, we are in the book of Revelation. Um, If you've been coming, you understand that our approach is uh, the way we approach the rest of the Bible, that rather than just running this book to our world and trying to make all these connections, we're first uh, attempting to understand what this book meant to, to its world, to the original audience, and it meant something. The whole book, it was, it was understood. It was written to seven specific churches for a specific purpose. And I've given you a timeline. Did everybody get a timeline or not? If you didn't get a timeline, I'm doing everything I can to help you guys. Um, I have them on each of the four speakers. Don't hesitate at all to get out of your seat right now and come get one if you didn't get one. Um, In the day, I would have said, come on, we're in, a, we're in a gymnasium. I mean, stop acting like we're in a church building. So just come up, get what you need. Um, you're going to see on the timeline that I hold to an early dating of Revelation. Uh, my dating is right around 68, 69 um, A.D. Uh, other people will put it a later date, sometime during the reign of Domitian. Let me tell you why I hold to this early date. It's because John speaks prophetically about Jerusalem being trampled by this beast. And historically, we know that that happened in 70 AD. Uh, So it has to happen uh, sometime before that. Um, But the book itself is written to prepare Christians living in a specific part of the world uh, for the beast. And that beast is Domitian, as almost every scholar will say. Um, let me just, without, because I get a little bit irritated when people take Revelation and make all these connections to today, we can make some of the same mistakes when we're trying to understand it in, in the first century and, and then try to make all those connections, uh, but yet at the same time, I can't help but do it a little bit, um, and scholars do it a little bit as well, so um, several times John speaks of a beast with seven heads. One of those times we saw was last week in Revelation 17. So you can just go there if you want or you can listen to this, Revelation 17. Beginning with verse nine. And John said, this calls for a mind with wisdom. Think about this. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. And everybody in the first century, seven hills is Rome. Um, Even to this day, Rome is a city built on seven hills. And there are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. And the beast who once was and now is not, but will be, is an eighth king. And the way that this, I think, can be pieced together... um, the beast is, is clearly, I think, the Roman Empire. The seven heads are the Roman emperors. The five who have fallen are Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. The one who is, which is during the time of John writing this, is Vespasian. The one who is not come but will only remain in a little while would be Titus. And then the eighth king is Domitian, who John describes as once was, is not and will be. And that description of Domitian 
fits exactly what the early church uh, would have called Domitian. Um, they called him Nero Part Two, or Nero Come Back to Life. Um, Nero, if you remember, is that emperor that unleashes uh, that first wave of persecution towards the Christians, and, and it was horrific. It, it was it was brutal. But the thing about that persecution, it was also very local, limited to the city of Rome, and it only lasted a few years because Nero died soon thereafter. But now we are talking about a Nero who has come back to life, and that is Domitian. And Domitian and and Nero are, are two emperors who have a lot in common. They're both megalomaniacs. A Stalin, a Hitler. I mean, that's the category they fall into. And, and the thing about megalomaniacs, as you see them throughout history, is they have this insatiable need for power. They can never get enough power. But combined with that need for power is this intense insecurity and paranoia. They're always thinking they're going to lose their power. And that's exactly what Nero was, and that's exactly uh, who Domitian will be. Domitian kills family members. He's probably the one responsible for killing his brother Titus when Titus is the emperor. He kills several high-ranking senators. He kills thousands of people. Anyone who poses even the slightest threat, Domitian is going to take him out. In fact, this is what Pliny, the Roman historian, a contemporary, an eyewitness to this, says about Domitian. And this is not a Christian. This is a, a Roman describing Domitian. He says he is the beast from hell who sat in its den licking blood. And that sounds so similar to what John, how John describes uh, Domitian as, as this beast uh, from the abyss who gets drunk um, on the blood of the saints. Now, why is Domitian going to target Christians? Well, when it comes to this emperor worship thing that is developing... Domitian is one emperor who takes this further than any emperor before him. Domitian insists that you worship him as Lord and God or you die. And now you can see how he would target Christians. Another interesting fact is in 79 AD, Mount Vesuvius erupts. What... what, When I say Mount Vesuvius, you say Pompeii, okay? That's the whole story of Pompeii being destroyed. Uh, We have movies on this kind of stuff today. Um, But historians say as as many as a half million people died. Imagine that. And soon thereafter, a famous oracle went out. Oracles... Uh, our pagan prophecies, what, what God's word is to us, oracles were to the ancient world. Um, and this particular oracle, which even the historian Josephus uh, talks about because it's a big deal, it essentially said this. It said the reason behind Mount Vesuvius erupting is because the ancient uh, God of the Hebrews 
is avenging his honor towards Rome for destroying his house and his holy city. And the, and, and the oracle continues um, by saying, and one day this God will send his prince or his son from the line of David to repay his enemies and he will be the king of the world. Now think about this. Who destroyed God's holy city and God's house from an earthly perspective? Well, Vespasian is a general in the army who's given that assignment by Emperor Nero. However, when Nero dies, uh, he goes back to be the emperor, and his son Titus then takes up being the general at that time, and his son Titus then carries it out. Who is Vespasian? That's Domitian's dad. Who's Titus? That's Domitian's brother. They are the ones responsible for destroying God's holy city and God's house. And then you have Josephus, who's the one who includes this oracle in his history. He is Vespasian's adopted son, making him Domitian's brother, which means, of course, Domitian knows about this oracle. And imagine now how that plays into his paranoia. Now add, to th- add this to, to the whole thing. There is this organic movement, pockets of people throughout the empire who are boldly declaring that the God of the Hebrews has sent his son to the world and that this God of the Hebrews is Lord of lords and King of kings. And see, this is the setting then of Revelation. You have a Caesar, a a, a beastly megalomaniac, who recognizes the threat that Christianity is to his lordship. In fact, in the first century, the two fastest growing religions are emperor worship and Christianity. It's this clash of two kings who are both calling themselves king of kings and lord of lords. In fact, the the coin that Domitian issued the quarter of that day, the thing that everyone had in their pockets, had an image of him on the front side with divine Caesar written in there. And then on the back side, it showed him sitting on his throne, holding the seven stars in his hand. Who holds the seven stars? Is it Domitian? Or is it God's son? And that's the clash uh, that, that, that is transpiring um, as, this is, as, is, uh, as this book is being written. Now, it's written to a specific province. Let me just show you uh, the province. The province name in the Roman Empire is Asia. Um, the seven major cities are where these seven churches are. Now, Asia means east. In other words, Asia isn't Western. And I know I just stated the obvious. But it's not Roman. It's not Greek. It's Eastern. Its its roots are Eastern, even though it's part of the Roman Empire. Now, the reason why I tell you all this is because emperor worship never really takes off in the Western part of the Roman Empire. It doesn't take off in, in Rome because it's not a Western idea. They're kind of always looking at this whole thing as what a joke. 
But in the east, it thrives and it flourishes because the east, they are used to their pharaohs and their kings uh, being seen as divine. And it's in the province of Asia, primarily, where you have even these cities uh, that are all competing to be the world Vatican, uh, the, the world center of worship to Caesar. And now, God... Christ sends a letter to John to send to these seven churches in this province. Long introduction, but let's stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to the seven letters, and then we'll complete uh, Revelation after the seven letters. To the angel, the messenger, literally, or the pastor, of the church in Ephesus, right. By the way, way, red letter in my Bible, which means what? These are the words of Jesus himself. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them to be false. You have persevered. You have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. But I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first, your first love. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's God's word. You can be seated. So this letter starts off to the, to the angel. It could be to the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Um, I want to just say a few things about Ephesus that I think are important. I think Ephesus is the, is the first church addressed because Ephesus as a city is, is first in importance. Uh, it's the third largest city in the whole Roman Empire. It's smaller only to Rome and Alexandria, scholars say that anywhere between three and 500,000 people lived in Ephesus, making it a major metropolis in that day. This is a world-class city. Uh, it is um, a port city on a major trade route where all the countries are passing in and out, people of every tribe and language. Um, I think it's for this reason that Caesar Augustus makes Ephesus the capital city um, of Asia Minor. Um, It's a a city that has all the Greco-Roman goodies. Uh, It has stadiums, theaters, uh, the finer amenities of life, running water, both hot and cold, indoor toilets, colonnaded streets, 
marble fountains, gardens, large outdoor marketplaces where all the goods of the world are sold. This is Ephesus. So think a little bit, New York City, L.A. It's also an intellectual center of of the world. The second biggest library is housed in this city, and libraries in that day were were the equivalent of universities in our day. So it it houses Harvard or Oxford. It's also a religious center. 20 different temples to uh, various Greco-Roman gods um, also uh, fill this city, with the biggie being which one? Does anybody know? Good, you're going to learn something. Unless you're bashful, I'll give you one more chance. What's the big temple in, in, in Ephesus? Artemis. Artemis is the most worshipped god in Asia. She is their Asherah. She is this female de- deity born to Zeus, and she is considered to be the mother goddess who was believed to be the source and the protector of all human life. Now, besides this temple being probably the wonder of the ancient world, it was spectacular. In the temple's paradise, because temples in that day had courtyards, courtyards that were filled with parks and trees and groves, uh, sometimes with um, exotic, tame animals. Uh, And this became the place where the worshiper could come with the understanding that this is where the God walked. Now what makes the paradise of Artemis' temple so sacred is that legend had it that she and her brother Apollo were born to Zeus in that place. And that people literally witnessed her image falling from heaven from Zeus and landing in that, uh, in that place, in that paradise, in a tree. And that tree was called the tree of life. Now, I wouldn't have even told you this. I mean, I'm studying all this stuff, but these are things I probably would include in a sermon. If I also hadn't been studying Acts 19 this week, which I had to study as well because that's when Paul goes to Ephesus, I just saw a verse there that just, I was stunned when I saw it. Um, go ahead, Acts 19, verse 35. It says, and the mayor mayor quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian, the world center of 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 the temple, of the great Artemis? And listen to this. And that her image, which fell from heaven... And I was kind of wondering, like, do I do we believe this stuff or not? And then, well, there it is. That legend is right here in our Bibles. But here's what I want you to consider. In the ancient world, the number one killer was childbirth. Conservative estimates is that one out of four women would die 
at some point in their life giving birth to a child. That is a conservative estimate. I've heard uh, it as much as one out of two. Imagine if that's our reality. Added to that, three out of four children died before they reached the age of ten. That is a sobering reality to live with. And now Artemis is the God who is the source and the protector of all human life. You can understand why thousands upon thousands came to to Ephesus to the temple of Artemis to get her protection. Now, no other city other than maybe Jerusalem gets more attention in our New Testament than Ephesus. Paul is the first to come to Ephesus. Acts 19 devotes a whole chapter. Um, You can turn there or you can just listen to to what I'm going to read. I'm going to start in verse 8. It says, Paul entered the synagogue. There's a large Jewish population in Ephesus in the first century. He spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, but some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. The way is what uh, Christians were originally called. So Paul left them, and he took the disciples with him. By the way, in the verses before that, it says that Paul chose 12 disciples. He's becoming just like Jesus. He's, He's making disciples, 12 in all. Follow me as I follow Christ, says Paul. Paul took his disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived not just in Ephesus, but in the whole province of Asia, heard the word of God. That gives me goosebumps. In fact, archaeologists have uncovered a building right in the heart of Ephesus, right next to the the great library, the, the, the university, and across the street from that is Ephesus' largest brothel. And there's a sign, uh, one of the, the, the stones that they found in this, in this building said the lecture hall of, and then it's broken off. Ugh, it's one of those teasing kind of things. But for a moment, let's just say that that might be the lecture hall. I mean, that is so Paul, that is so the early church to target places like Ephesus and go right in the heart of it where there's a brothel here and a university here and boldly proclaim Christ. They had chutzpah. And if you want to know how much chutzpah they had, just keep reading Acts 19. In fact, let's do that. Acts 19 Uh, Because this thing only gets better. Verse 24 says, A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis. Of course they're making shrines to Artemis. This is the world center for the worship of Artemis. And there's a business to be had. Travelers come in and they need their uh, little toy to go home with. He called them together. Because 
Artemis brings a lot of business for the craftsmen here, so he called them together along with the workers and related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. And he says that the gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the whole world and will be robbed of her divine majesty. And so when they heard this, they were furious and they began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And soon the whole city was in a riot. And they all went into the, to, to the theater, the next verse says. And then Paul says, let me in there. <laughs> let me in there. What I want us to see here is what's going on. Paul's bold proclamation of the gospel is putting Artemis out of business. And this is where I want to ask the question because of how we stand in our world and the message we declare in our world. What gods are we confronting? And are we putting businesses out of business? What gods are we putting out of business? Are we even causing any riots? I think that's a fair question. At a minimum, we are getting the flavor of the chutzpah of the early church. Now, after Paul leaves, Paul sends what I would consider his best disciple, who is who? Is who? Timothy. And he sends Timothy to pastor this church in Ephesus. Paul also writes three letters to Ephesus that end up in our New Testament. Ephesians, of course, is one of them, but also 1 and 2 Timothy are written to Pastor Timothy, who's pastoring Ephesus. After Paul dies, the Apostle John now also comes to Ephesus, and now from Ephesus, pastors not only the church of Ephesus, but pastors all the seven churches in this province of Asia. In fact, tradition has it because John was asked to take care of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Both John and Mary are both buried in Ephesus. But what I want us to see is that it seems like the church is throwing all of its big guns at this city. And Domitian, when he becomes emperor, does the same thing. Because here is an emperor who is the first to recognize the threat that Christianity is to his lordship. What he does is he builds a temple to himself in Ephesus and says, this is the world center for the uh, worship of the emperor. In fact, here's what scholars have reconstructed uh, that temple to look like. It was built on the side of a hill overlooking the state Agora. The state Agora was the main marketplace. Um, and imagine if that 
was plunked right on the hill over there across the river. That statue right there of Domitian is just under 30 feet high, so you can get a sense of what's going on. You will worship me, or you will die. Now listen to the words of Jesus to this church. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. I know. In fact, uh, that word could be translated, I see. I see. I see you. Now that could be either one of the most comforting things in the world or the scariest things in the world. But John describes Jesus in, in the first chapter of Revelation, and he says his eyes are like fire. And, 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 and those are eyes that don't just see the appearance, but they can blaze right through us, right to our hearts. And Jesus says, I, 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 I see your works I, I, I know your hard work. This, this is a church that labors for Christ. It doesn't just talk the talk. It doesn't just sit around and armchair quarterback uh, what we should be doing. It rolls up its sleeves and it's blood, sweat, and tears. He says, I know your work. He says, I know your Perseverance. Perseverance is this word uh, throughout the New Testament. Whenever the New Testament writers are addressing uh, suffering and persecution, which is almost every book because it was so prevalent in the first century, um, they're always commending this quality in people's lives. In, in, in Greek, it's, it's this word hupomene. Mene just by itself means to remain. It means to stand and, and, and this, is, this is that hyper standing. It's this idea that in the face of, of great adversity, a person is immovable, unshakable, unflinching. I love that quality. I, 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 uh, I coach football, and... Uh, I don't know why. With some kids, the moment things get tough, they, they tap out. I'm done. But with, with, with other kids, it's like we can be down three touchdowns, and I can just look at them in the eyes and see, Coach, it's game on. That's this church. They had this quality. Verse 2, Jesus says, in essence, I see your unwavering commitment to truth. You, you, you don't put up with false teaching. You don't put up with these false teachers. You, you, you test it. You're, 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 you're holding the line. In fact, a little bit later in the, in the letter, he says, you don't put up with the Nicolaitans. And this is where I probably should address who the Nicolaitans are. Um, one of the realities that, that we don't really know in full detail is how one was expected to show their loyalty to Caesar or, or, or what it meant to have that physical mark on your life to, to show that you were loyal to Caesar. But there's so many clues. It, 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 it's obvious that for you to participate 
in the Roman economic and social deal, you had to pay to play. You had to pay homage to Caesar to buy and sell, to have social standing. In fact, one of the, the books I'm reading, it's, a, it's, it's written by historians, it's called A Pinch of Incense. Uh, what, what they suggest is that you had to burn incense to, to Domitian before you could even enter the marketplace, whether you wanted to sell things there or buy things there. Now, burning incense is an act of worship. It's, it's, it's a sign of devotion. A Nicolaitan, then, is someone who says, you know what, it, do, it doesn't really matter if, if, if I burn a little incense. It doesn't matter if I say Heil Hitler. It doesn't matter if I pay lip service and, and say Caesar is Lord. Because God can see my heart, and God knows that as I do those things, I'm thinking, what a joke this whole thing is. Jesus is Lord, Caesar isn't, so paying lip service to him is no big deal. But the church of Ephesus says it is a big deal. We must not accommodate our mouth and our speech and our lives to Caesar. And so they, they held the line. And maybe it's because um, the, the word that Paul gave to the Ephesian elders the last time he met with them, he, he, he said, look guys, there are wolves that are going to come among you and they're going to rob the sheep. Beware of them. Or maybe uh, they really took to heart uh, Timothy who also got, got letters from Paul and, and, and where Timothy would say to them what Paul said to him, guard your doctrine, watch it. Hold the line of truth. This church is doing that. They are not accommodating the message to the culture around them. They're, they're not accommodating their lives to the culture around them. And they're doing this in such a pagan culture where the currents are so anti-God, anti-Christ, and anti-the thing, things of God. And they held the line. And here's where I want to ask a question. What kind of letter would Jesus write crossroads? What kind of letter would, would, would Jesus write to you? As our world goes PC, the gospel becomes more offensive. Are we willing to declare to our world that Jesus Christ is Lord in a world that doesn't want to be under any authority, a world that rejects any notion of absolute truth? That message that Jesus is Lord is incredibly offensive. And what about our lives? Do we just live to accommodate, to just kind of blend in to the world around us so that we're not going to offend anyone? That's a Nicolaitan. And, and put a Nicolaitan next to the Apostle Paul. See, a Nicolaitan would never put Artemis out of business. It would never cause a riot. It would never shake the world where our world needs to be shook. Put a Nicolaitan next to Christ. I think we forget how incredibly offensive Jesus could be. He caused people sometimes to pick up stones. 
I mean, his message had bite. It was like salt in a wound. It stings, but it heals. And more and more, I am afraid that Christians today don't live lives or have a message that has bite where it both stings, but it also heals. Think about the beautiful thing that Jesus said to this church. He says, you guys are killing it in terms of laboring for the kingdom. You're holding the line of truth. You're staying true to the gospel. You're not compromising your lives in in any way. But, mm, but, (laughs) I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Now, first there means first in importance. You guys are doing so much good, but you have forgotten what is most important. I know how this can be. I mean, I, I, I know how I can get so caught up in the work of the Lord that I forget the Lord of the work. Where it all of a sudden becomes what I do for God instead of loving God. And I was thinking about this in my own life this week and and how easily I can succumb to that. It it just automatically brought to mind uh, the story of Mary and Martha in Luke's gospel. And there is Mary and Martha, they bring Jesus into their home, and, and Martha is just slaving away, just trying to get things done and, and do things for Jesus. And, and there's something beautiful about that. But then she complains to Jesus, and she said, Would you have my sister Mary help me? And Jesus just looks at her and says, She's chosen what's better. And there she is at Jesus' feet, just taking him in. Loving him. And this is really throughout the whole Bible. What's, what's of first importance to God is, is Shema. Is, is that we love God with, with everything that we have. And then included in this, it's not just a, a vertical love where I, I love God and, and God loves me. But, but that love becomes very horizontal. Because Jesus said there's, a, there's something just as important as loving God. And that is that you must love your neighbor. And then Jesus said, and, and neighbor includes even your worst enemy. Love. Because as Paul said, the greatest of these is love. And somehow this Ephesian church, which is doing so much good for Christ and standing so tall for Christ and and, and laboring and, and, and persevering, it forgot what's most important. Because truth without love is bankrupt. It's empty. I love what Tim Keller said. Tim Keller said truth without love is harsh and self-righteous. Think about that. 
He says, love without truth is hollow sentiment and cowardice. Truth without love is harsh and self-righteous. Love without truth is hollow sentiment and cowardice. He says, both are selfish because both are ungodlike. And that made me this week think about that that scene in Exodus where, where Moses it gets to that point with God where he's like, God, show me your face. I, I, I want to see your face. Show me your glory. And God says, you can't see my face. It'll kill you. But I'll show you my essence. And he hides Moses in the cleft of a rock. And then he passes by Moses. And in that moment, he gives to Moses the essence of who he is. And, and it starts off, the Lord, the Lord. And he lays out all these things that, 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 that he is. And it's a chiasm. So that a chiasm is when you have a truth on, on each side and then truth here. And it keeps moving to the middle and into the heart. And into the very heart of that chiasm is the Hebrew word amet. God says, I am amet. I am true. I am truth. And then on both sides of amet is the Hebrew word hesed. So at the very heart of who God is, he is true. Ruth swallowed up in Hesed. And I love what, what John 1.14 says. The word became flesh and we saw his face. We beheld his glory, the glory of the Father, full of Amet and Hesed. Hesed and Amet, grace and truth. Because that's what's at the heart of God. That's what is at the heart of Christ. That has to be at the heart of us. As a youth pastor, before I had kids, and I'll tell you, this is a lot easier to say before you have kids to parents. Man, sometimes I think, those parent meetings, I must have sounded really cocky. Uh, and then you have your own kids, you're like, whoa. Um, but I used to just, I used to tell them, I, I, I said, you know, you don't have the luxury today to hit a single with love or truth. You need to hit a home run with both love and truth. I said, your kids need bold love. They need bold truth. Because that's what we all need. That, that, that's what our world needs. This week I was at Stocking where I tutor a kid. And uh, we like to get out on the playground a little bit. And so I, I, we were playing basketball. I had him worked into a frenzy and um, all of this. And which may, may have contributed to what happened next. Uh, the bell rang. But then this kid came out of nowhere. He wasn't even playing basketball. Just leveled a kid. I'm not going to tell you what I said to him. Okay. But he definitely got the truth part from me. Um, I don't do bully. Um, but he started to cry. So something spoke to my heart. You need to, you need to pursue him. So I found out the, the classroom to which he was going, and I beat him there. And so he's coming down the hall, and he sees me, and he freaks out a little bit. <laughs> And I just, I told him, I said, buddy, first of all, I want you to know, 
I've done far worse things in the playground than, than, than you could ever do. I have made so many mistakes. I said, but do you, I, I want you to know why I told you what I told you. I said, it's because I believe in you. I believe you are so much better than that. And then I got down on my knees so he could be looking down at me. And I said, I'm not going to leave until you know in your heart that I said those things because I absolutely believe in you and love you. He started to cry. It's got to be truth and love. And when it's not, Jesus is going to say, repent. You repent because you have forsaken your first love. In other words, it's not just uh, turn from this behavior back to this behavior, turn from bad to being good, but turn from that back to me. And now here's the whole problem, though. This is the problem when, when we're talking about love. When we're talking about love, we're talking about our hearts. And our heart is what it is. And really, for our hearts to change, you can't just beat your heart into shape. Our hearts really need to be melted. And what I love about this is Jesus doesn't just tell us that we need to change. He actually tells us how to change. He gives us the remedy to how our hearts can actually melt. And it's what he says next. He says, consider how far you have fallen. That's the remedy. Because it takes a lot of guts and courage to do that. I mean, I find it amazing in the Gospels, you see these pairs over and over again. You will see a self-righteous, Mr. Right, Mr. Right doctrine, Mr. Right living, uh, paired with a despicable sinner. You have it with Nicodemus. He is the epitome of being Mr. Right. And then you have the Samaritan woman who is the epitome of being a despicable sinner. Five husbands. Now she's living with a sixth. You have the rich young ruler who who has it all put together. And then you have Zacchaeus who's the town's worst sinner. You have this all put together Pharisee who knows the Bible backwards and forwards. And then you have this, this prostitute who comes in and washes Jesus' feet. You have another Pharisee with a tax collector. You have the prodigal with his self-righteous who does everything right, brother, older brother. And here's what's amazing with these pairings. Every time Mr. Right, Mr. Right doctrine, Mr. Right living rejects Jesus and the despicable sinner falls in love with him. And so you're left asking, what's the difference? Until we know how far we have fallen, our hearts will never melt. 
And not only how far we have fallen, but probably just or more important, who we have fallen from. And this is where John, I think, is picking up on the legend of Artemis. Artemis fell from Zeus. Christian, do you know who you have fallen from? When you fall, when we fall, when we fail, we are not just falling from the creator and the ruler of the world. We are falling from a father, a good, good father who loves us, who's passionate about us, and will do anything to get us in his arms. You guys, this is why repentance is such a gift. It's, it's, it's not a chore. It, it, it is a gift that, that we can look at our life, that we can acknowledge uh, the, the ways that we have fallen. We can look at even the depth and breadth of it and see it in all its, its ugliness, knowing that when we turn to God, we're not going to just go home and get a spanking from him, but we're going to have a God who's on the porch loving us, waiting for us, and then running to us, embracing us, kissing us, and calling us son and daughter. That's what melts my heart. The experience of repenting and experiencing the love of the Father in that repentance. I can only love. You can only love because he loved us first. And until we know the love of God in Jesus Christ, which is, includes how far we have fallen and who we have fallen from, our hearts will never melt and change to love. Repent. And Jesus says the stakes are so high. His warning is, he says, I will remove my lampstand. Having a lampstand removed is, is, is a church or a life where God is no longer present. And here's Jesus' awesome promise. When you repent, you will eat from the tree of life, which is in my paradise. Let's pray. God, we can sit here today and just hear a sermon or we can have our lives changed right now. Changed. If we would repent. And this is where I ask for your Holy Spirit to move into my life and to each of our lives, God, to show us how far we have fallen. We need your help. And to show us the love of the Father, the one we have fallen from. May there be massive repentance in this room today. In Jesus' name.